This morning we're going to be in Ephesians. I'm going to open with prayer and we'll go from there. Ooh, that rhyme. Some of the time. Father, thank you so much for our time of worship together. I pray you bless it. I pray that um, your word opens our hearts and minds to understand how to walk in newness of life in such a way that we bring honor and glory to you. And um, most importantly, that we build a relationship with you, that we seek to, to know you understand you, to trust you, and walk with you as, Lord Jesus, as your brethren and sister, sisters, and Father as your children. And so uh, this morning we come to learn about you, to seek to understand what it means to be here, why are we here, and what does it mean to walk here. And so thank you for writing so clearly to us in your word about these things. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do a, a look through Ephesians this morning. Um, before Ephesians 4, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, but I'm, I'm going to back up to Ephesians 2. Uh, and we're going to look at just a little bit in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and following. And then we will skip to 4 and look at that. Uh, because... We've been doing a just a rundown of the gospel throughout different books of the Bible. And this section will be more of a, a look at the gospel, but the implications of the gospel, the application, because you don't... It's one thing to say, oh, I believe the gospel, but then there's the if I believe it then, the if then, right? Third class condition sense. The if then clause, the uh, if I believe it then this should be my actions, right? And so, <clears throat> before we jump right into Ephesians 4, I, I want to just remind us of what he said already in Ephesians 2, verse 4 and following. But God being rich in mercy because of his great, um, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Again, salvation is important to understand because you're not saved. You're not saved from. Um, you're not saved unto eternal life through the death of Jesus. You're saved unto eternal life through the life of Jesus. Right? Romans five ten breaks it down. You're saved. You're reconciled to God. You're saved from hell. Your sins are paid through the death. But that doesn't get you in, which is why. When you read, say, something like 1 Corinthians 15, and it says, we are most miserable people if the resurrection didn't take place. Well, I thought the death of Jesus was everything. The cross was everything. No, it's not everything. It only gets you out of hell. It's your get out of hell ticket, but it doesn't get you into heaven. You have to be born from above, or you have to be, as he says, raised with him. That's an act only God can do. You can't do that. You can't undo it, because you can't do it. All you can do is appeal to God for him to do it, right? You can say, Father, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and he became Lord because he lived and he, he died and you rose him from the, the grave and then you honored him by making him Lord over all king of kings and Lord of lords and bosses of bosses and archons of archons and rulers of rulers, all these things. You've made him Lord over everything and I believe that, that you did this great work and by him dying, he paid for sins, he reconciled 
made a way for reconciliation between man and God, and then you rose him, making a way for men to then enter into your presence because you raised men with him. He is the prototokos. He is the firstborn among many brethren. That is to say, he is the icon by which we look to ourselves. We say, what do I look like? A, a prototype is the basis for everything after the prototype in a, in a, in a proper, proper understanding of the prototype anyway. So the Christ is, in fact, you know, the firstborn. So we are born with him. That's as he is raised. That's why it says, and verse six, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Of course, this goes back up to 120 where God is talking about his power that he has, he unleashed his, the greatness of the, the power that he has in verse 19 of chapter one, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe when, uh, and then it says when he, exerted it toward Christ when he raised him from the dead. So God has to, he took all of his power, as verse 19 says, all of his power in a moment because the strength of your might is all of your power in a moment. So if you have might and you, the strength of all of your might is all of your power in a moment, God did that toward Christ when he raised his body from the dead. Right? So he did the same thing toward you when he raised you from the dead, spiritually. Again, you didn't feel it, you didn't see it. He just says he did it. The only thing you felt, if you in fact were saved, was that your heart was lifted up, you felt at peace, you felt forgiveness, you felt love, you felt rest. There should have been a sense of euphoric blessing upon, your, on, upon you in that moment. And then after that point, you should experience another thing, that you love a person you, you shouldn't logically love. Right? As Peter says, we love him, though we have not seen him. Is that logical? I don't have that same thought for any other false, or any other God out there, right? You wouldn't think of Buddha or you know, all these other guys that have uh, been throughout and have love for someone that you don't know, you've never met. It's not logical to have a life-altering love that where you will devote your life to this person, um, unless it is, you're born from above. And the next thing is you would have love for your brethren, right? Because you would have faith and love, love for your brother. If you don't have love, as First John says for your brethren, you're not of God. It's that simple. So you're looking for faith and love as the basis for this outcome. But in the base, the base reality is that comes out of being a new creation. It's not something you have to produce to make it happen. It's something that exists and you have to tap into that reality. Right? You have love. You have to grow in respect to that love as, say, Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says. It's a great prayer. You have to grow in that faith, which is like Colossians 1, 9 through 12 says. Again, another great prayer. So when you go through and you go, you grow in respect to your salvation, you grow in respect to your faith, or you grow in respect to your love, as those two passages talk about. By the way, if you want to places to pray through for yourself, those are two of the passages that I've used for years and years and years that I pray through constantly and have prayed through constantly. Uh, concerning my own spiritual maturation and my own spiritual growth. I recommend just praying through the text because at least you know you're praying something that the Holy Spirit himself wrote so you know it's going to be answered. <laughs> I, always like, I always like to pray knowing that my prayers are going to be for sure answered, at least part of them. Um, the part that he wrote. <laughs> pray according to his will. He'll do it. Well, I know what his will is because he wrote it down. So uh, in Colossians 1, 9 through uh, 12 and Philippians 1, 9 through 11. But... He says here that we were raised up with him. That's the basis of our maturation, right? 
is our salvation. The fact that I'm raised up with him and seated with him. In other words, right now, we all here have, who have believed in Christ, we all have a nameplate in heaven. And in the Roman, it's a, it's a Roman mental picture uh, where the king had his, the Caesar, he had his seat in unbelie- un- uh, below the seat, excuse me. His name will be below the seat. And to this day, you can go to the Colosseums and the various places throughout the world when they dig one up out of the ground and there'll be a nameplate underneath the seat. It's still there, you know. So people scratch them up and they put them in museums. But most of, most of the time, there'll be a in the seat. And there's always one where, the, where the, the head of the city was and then his, his wife and his children and then important people, right, outside of that. And so there was a ring of important people that would have their nameplate, and everybody else were the commoners. And then you had the people before, the, before it in, in, in the Colosseum. Well, in the, the picture is this. Our, our name is on a plate in heaven, sitting not before the throne, but on the throne, raised up with Christ, seated with Christ. Where's Christ seated? The throne. Where are we seated? On the throne. Why? Because we're going to rule and reign with him. That's how important you are. It's, um, <clears throat> it's important to understand that. If you don't see yourself accurately, you won't live according to that reality. So it's important to see yourself according to the truth that you are royal priesthood, right? A royal priesthood. Something that in the Mosaic law you couldn't be. You couldn't be a king and a priest. Jesus is a king and a priest. That's why it's a new covenant, not the old covenant. And you are a king and a priest with him offering up spiritual sacrifices unto God from a spiritual place, right? From your new person. He says he did this so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in respect to Christ Jesus. In other words, God did this because he wants to be really, really, really kind to you and he wants to show you, he's excited about showing you how wonderful he's going to be to you in the future. And then he reiterates, in case you didn't already hear it three times or four times, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are God's poema, We're his workmanship. The word poema is um, a Greek word that's master craftsman. Like it's, it's, a, it's a master craft. Something that someone does that is a perfect um, a, a, a model of excellence. It's not just ergon. We're not his work, his, his energy. Uh, we're his poema. We're something he created that's beautiful and amazing. We're his workmanship. Created in respect to Christ Jesus. That's what it says, in Christ Jesus. Those can get tricky on your brain because we, we don't speak that way. Uh, if I say, build this, if I tell my kid to build a Lego kit in respect to, or uh, if I say, build this in, in Gracie, if I tell Ellie to build this Lego kit in Gracie, she goes, what the heck does that mean? I don't know what you're talking about. If I say, build this in respect to how Gracie would build it, now you understand what I'm talking about. The method, right? If I say, you're created in respect to Christ, now you know what I'm talking about. Because the in here is an in respect to, almost, almost every time it means in respect. Not every time, but almost every time it means in respect. So you're, he's the icon that's why I always say the Prototokos is Colossians 1 talks about. Because he's the icon by which I look at myself. He's the one I'm comparing myself to. If I'm created in respect to Christ, then he's the person I'm looking at in my spirit. 
My spirit is created like him. My body one day will be as well, but not now. So he says, you are his workmanship created in respect to Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. This is important to, to look at, to think about, and we'll, we'll look more at it in chapter four, but most of what God wants of us is just written down. It's not that flashy. He wants men who are husbands to be great husbands in respect to the Lord. He wants them to relate to him as, and then relate to his wife and then as fathers to be great fathers in respect to the Lord. He just wants people to be great employees in respect to their bosses. He wants people to be great employers or owners of companies and treat their, 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 their employer, employees with grace and with kindness and fairness. I mean, most of your, the greatness of your life in heaven, the great things you have, will have done will be because of the way you have refined your faith and your love in respect, first and foremost, to the people closest to you. That is where you'll be most praised because that is what God has written. Everything outside of that, doing big mission trips and big ministries and all this stuff, great, wonderful. If you, in fact, have first things first. If you don't, then back up and don't think outside of that. Think only about your life first, right? Then your authoritative responsibilities and your relationships and then work your way out from there because that's where it starts, right? If you, ref- if you, you refine your faith and your love, and I say refine it because people like to use guilt a lot. You know, this is what God calls us to do. Be a good husband. No, no, no. We are called children of God. My, my goal is to mature into being externally what I am internally, in respect to my wife, in respect to my kids, in respect, holy, blameless, true, pure, eternal, right? In the way that I carry myself, godly. So I'm learning spiritually to mature up because you gotta remember when you're, when you're newly created, you don't get a matrix down though. It's not like, tick, 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 tick. I don't wanna fly a helicopter. I can't fly a helicopter, you know? I don't just go on the computer and download this stuff. You actually have to grow and respect to your salvation. You get no advantage, just like Jesus when he was born. That's why it's a, he understands us. Because even spiritually, you get no advantage. Even the knowledge you had, if you were, say, a Christian, but you weren't saved, you know, if you were in Christianity and floating around your life, and you weren't saved, that knowledge now has to be renewly, renewed and digested in order to apply that to a new create, newly created spirit. You have to mature in respect to your salvation. No one gets a benefit of just getting a download. And half the time, again, like the the, the traditional aspect or any kind of perversion of that download that you already have in you, now you have to fight against that in order to mature. It's great when you don't have that download. You don't know anything about that, Alan, right? No. Nothing about the, uh, the struggle against battling against a previous religious flesh that's beating you down. Um, just a piece of cake. <laughs> and so he says, 
he's got his works pre-planned for us, and he has. He's written those out for us. And he's also planned them. Because as you mature and grow, you will then find the work that he's planned for you to do. That's outside of the written, or the objective. There's the objective, that which is written, and then there's the subjective, that which is out there for you to discover. But if a kid never learns how to play an instrument, how's he going to know which instrument he likes to play or is good at? If a kid never knows, it never learns how to throw a, a football, a baseball, a basketball, whatever, how are they going to know where their real skill is, right? You can't just intellectually read up on how to throw a football, shoot a basketball, or throw a baseball and learn if you're actually good at it. You won't. You'll never know. You'll just know that you think you could be good because you read so much and you know so much. But you don't know if you're actually good. Right? You don't, same, you don't know what your gifts are and your talents. You know, a lot of times you think, oh, your human inclinations are your spiritual gifts. No, spiritual gift came after salvation not when you were young, not the way you were raised, not your natural proclivity as a human being. Those are human traits. A spiritual gift is first and foremost spiritual. <laughs> and it was given after salvation. And it's something discovered because you walk out your salvation growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it, it, it bubbles to the surface. And it's, I would say everybody's gifts are like snowflakes. Nobody just has one. You'll have percentages if there was a pie chart. You're more encouraging and you're less teaching and, or you're more teaching and you're less service or whatever it is. You know, in other words, everybody's got percentages of their primary gifts and then your spectrum of natural gifts that you might employ in the body of Christ. Everybody's got a, uh, nobody's just like, I don't serve, I only speak. That's ridiculous, right? I mean, we all have a plethora of gifts. Even Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12, he's like, yeah, I have lots of gifts, right? He was an apostle. He had lots of big, the big daddy gifts, you know, home run hitters. But because he was, a, he was an apostle, he had to have the big ones. But we all have many gifts too, but we tend to have a particular gift that is our primary and then the rest of them are support. Because to say you can teach, but you don't serve is ridiculous because teaching is serving, you know? So all that... To say is um, there are works that God has prepared beforehand, but you have to grow in your, in your salvation and understand that you, in fact, have to grow into understanding what those are because you're spiritually walking out a life um, of faith and love, and you will discover it. You will discover it. And that's not something that often comes soon. Um, again, the, the trick is people who have human... Uh, tendencies that are good or useful uh, tend to lean on those as their spiritual gifts. And maybe they'll match up. Maybe they won't. I know mine didn't. <laughs> My proclivity is to hide away and go play in the woods and not talk to people. <laughs> not get in, not, not be the head of something. So uh, it was, uh, I was joking around. I was telling, I don't know who it was. My first message, I was so it's so unnatural for me to get up and speak before people that I had to write out every single word. I would say, pause here. I'd say, look up and look to the left. I'd have notes in my, look up, look to the right. Because I would just stare at the thing the whole time, whatever, not want to look up at, from my notes. And I was like, somebody's like, you never look up. I'm like, okay, I got to write in there. Look up, Greg, look to the left. Look up, Greg, look to the right. Smile, 
All right, smile, Greg, look to the right. Smile, Greg, look to the left. This is... My natural proclivity is to not put myself in a situation like that. Uh, Not to... Always sat in the back, not in the front. Uh, So... My spiritual giftness, it truly is spiritual because it's, uh, it's, it's what I do that's against the grain of my flesh, really. He says this, and I, want, I was leading to this um, before we get in chapter four. He right. says, therefore, and, and this, this tells us kind of who we are, right? It leads us to understand something. He's going to just, this is Hebrews in a nutshell. If you took the book of Hebrews and you just crack that thing and squish it down and push all the water out, you pretty much get the book of Hebrews right here in this one passage, uh, which is fantastic. Therefore, remember that formerly you, that is the Gentiles, that would be most of us unless you know your genealogy from your Israeli roots, um, Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that would be the current day Jews at the time, that, that time, which is performed by, in the flesh by human hands. Not in case you didn't know that. <laughs> Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, from the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, Right? That is to say, the blessings. That's Deuteronomy 28. I'll bless you if you do this, and your pot will be blessed, and your field will be blessed, your dog will be blessed, and your flowers will be blessed, and everything will be blessed. Bless, 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 bless. Right? The commonwealth of Israel, in other words, the promises that you're excluded from all that previous information. You're excluded from that blessing. You were excluded from understanding who the Messiah is. You're excluded from all that. He says, um, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants, which they were of promise having no hope and without God in the world. That's an encouraging statement there, isn't it? Ah, you were pathetic. <laughs> but now in Christ Jesus, you, have, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Say, what is that? He explains it very simply. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. What's the enmity? The enmity means that which wants to fight you and kill you. That which hates you. He, he abolished that which hates you. What hated us? What was the enemy? What wanted to kill me? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life, right? That's what he's going to say. The enmity, this, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, right? Ordinances, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. So that in himself, he might make the two, that is to say, Israel and the Gentiles, one new man, establishing peace. Establishing not only peace with God, but because he established peace with God, it broke the old covenant, which was put the wall between Israel and the people. He took that out of the way. So the law of Moses was removed completely, had to be, in order for peace to be settled not only with God, but also with Israel as an implication. Now, the Gentiles probably didn't care that much about being at peace with Israel. But his, in other words, they were thinking about their eternal state. But he does say, so there's no more distinction between you and Israel in the new covenant. Because it's a spiritual covenant. It's not a covenant of Deuteronomy 28. If you do what's right, I'll bless you. If you do what's wrong, I'll curse you. It's, it's the covenant of 
of Genesis where God had Abraham cut the animal in half and go to sleep and God himself walked through it and made a covenant saying, I promise I'll bless you. That's the covenant he made. The precious and magnificent promises. If you believe in me and believe what I've done, then I will bless you. Then he says, verse 16, and might reconcile them both in, in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. God did put to death the enmity because Jesus, it says as, the, 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 um, as Colossians 2 says, the, the word was nailed, the law was nailed to the cross. And in the old days, back when a thief was a thief, they put thief above his name and he'd be on the cross. They put murder on the name and he'd be on the cross. So you'd know on the cross what this guy's sin was. Well, Jesus, above him, God wrote, he put the law up there and nailed it to the cross so that technically that thief paid for the sin of that one act, that act of thievery. That murderer paid for the act of murder with his life, with the other guy's life. He paid for his life. Jesus paid for everything contained in the law with his life forevermore, right? Forever, all time, as Hebrew says. So one sacrifice for all time. That being the law of heaven. The law of, heaven, right? the law of Moses and the law of heaven, right? Yeah. But mostly the law of heaven <laughs> because the law of heaven is the only one that really mattered for us, which was if you sin, you die, mm-hmm. Right? But the law of Moses was sort of the expanded version of that, watered down into a ridiculous fashion where it was a fake game, right? But it was still an expanded version because there was still a lot of death requirements in the law of Moses. Not as much as there should have been. So he says, verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. He did, he's quoting the Old Testament. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. It says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, that is to say to God, right? But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And what does he mean by that? How am I a citizen of heaven? Like legitimately, you have to think about that aspect. To be a citizen of somewhere, you have to come from that place, right? Like you're born in that place or you're, you do the paperwork and you're, you're signed in. But we are legitimately citizens because, and I don't want to turn there this morning, but just to refer to it, in Galatians 4, he says, heaven is our mother. Does it say the place in which God newly made the new creation that we are was from there and we came from there. So when God did a new, an act of newly creating us and we tore out our old spirit, killed it, made a new one and put it in, he made it there. And heaven was the mom, the womb that birthed us forth. We don't have a mother, we have a father only. But he uses heaven itself as the representation of the mom the place. So legitimately, our spirit is a legitimate citizen of heaven, not just one adopted in only, but actually a citizen from heaven according to the scriptures. We are citizens for sure. We were aliens and strangers, and now we're citizens with the holy ones. And you are of God's household. You're not before the throne, 
You're on the throne. You're with him. We're of God's household. We're his children. We're not his servants. We're his children. Understanding that means that you don't cower. Are you fellow citizens with the sinners? See, right, to the sinners at Ephesus, to the sinners at Colossae, to the sin, no, to the saints, the holy ones. Holy ones, holy ones, holy ones, holy ones, holy ones. Right, because that's who you are. He's not talking nonsense, trying to encourage you into thinking some lie. He's speaking the truth. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in respect to Christ, right? The Lord. That's collectively, we are the temple, collectively, the temple of God. That's what it says, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in spirit. It doesn't say in the spirit, it says in spirit. It's a little S there. As I say, your spirits collectively are being matured and grown into a house that God dwells. There are three temples in the Bible. One is the collective body of Christ, and that's God's temple. You see that right here. Two, the place where Jesus is in Hebrews 9, that's a physical place, and he's there, and it's actually a temple in heaven. Three, the individual bodies Here's the collective spirits. In heaven's the physical place. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's our individual bodies are the temple of who? The Holy Spirit. Right? The individual bodies. Now, our body is not the temple of God. Our spirits are the temple of God. Our body or spirit is not the temple for Jesus. That temple's up there. So anyway, just distinguishing that so you know who you're relating to and understanding um, when you're praying, when you're talking to him, you understand when you're, they're relating to you in a certain reality. And you either are in tune with that or you're not in tune with that. Right? You either know how to relate to them or you don't. And so anyway, now let's look at Ephesians 4 real quick. Here. So just as a guide for your own future reference, he breaks down, Paul masterfully writes this, um, you know, the Holy Spirit, I should say, masterfully writes this through Paul, and that he uses the word walk five times in this, in this four and five, in chapters four and five. He uses it in verse one, walk in a manner of the worthy. He uses it in verse 17, walk no longer as a Gentile's walk. He uses it in... Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love just as Christ, dot, dot, dot. He uses it in chapter 5, verse 8, walk as children of light. And he uses it in chapter 5, verse 15, walk in wisdom. And so each one of these is a walk out of a belief, right? You're walking because you believe something. Each one of these are walk like this, not like this, because of this truth. Not because you're supposed to. Not because that's the right thing to do. Because this is true. Right? So you walk according to something because it's true. You don't walk because you're supposed to. That's a slave. You walk because of who you are. 
because of what God has done and because of the relationship you do in fact have with them. And that's what these five walks point to. For sermonic purposes, you could say the five steps of the believer or some nonsense like that. But... Uh, <laughs> it has to alliterate. Yeah, you had to you know, put some sermonic alliteration down there. Be all fancy pants. But... Um, Uh, Therefore, he says in in, in chapter 4, verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, as I do you today, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Right? Well, how have I been called? Well, we just read it. Right? Been called to the adoption of sonship. How was that sonship accomplished? It was accomplished by God killing me and making me new. I died with him and rose with him spiritually, and one day I will physically, but for now spiritually, and my calling now is a son, right? As a son, it's Ephesians 1, 4, where he predetermined us to sons, 4 and 5. So our, our determination as salvation was God could have made us a servant, but God chose to make us a son or a daughter, son for the sake of state, right? He chose to make us a, a son. And that's better than me. I, I mean, anybody be sad about being a janitor in heaven? You know, sweeping gold or whatever. There's not, not that much to do probably, but, <laughs> but uh, probably a pretty clean place without too much garbage. But the reality is I'm not sad. Of just I'd be happy just to be in heaven, right? But to be a son where he says, no, you get an equal inheritance with Christ. I'm building massive, awesome homes for you. I'm building a place for you that is magnificent, a world that is massively awesome with unfathomable creations, creatures, things, beauties that will facilitate a new flesh body. So things that are hard like streets of gold, your spirit, you don't need a street of gold, right? Just float around. But if you, if you have a flesh, it's kind of important to have a street of gold. You pitter-patter little feet up there. No, wait, we'll get to it. So he says, walk in a manner worthy of calling what you've been called. I've been called into sonship. So that's my mindset. I'm walking according to my calling. So what is my calling? It's very important for all of us to have that seeded into our mind. Fixed, Because if you don't, you're just going to revert right back to, oh, yeah, I failed here. Oh, yeah, I should have done this. Oh, I should have done that. Who am I? Right? Who am I? What is my calling? My calling is sonship. First and foremost. That's why it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love, naturally. And all these are just rant. They're, he could have picked 50 words. We just throw, let's throw a few of them out there, right? Humility, I don't want to go get too much into the details of this. We could, and maybe we will another time. But humility is the technical realization of living in the reality of the authoritative structure you're in. That's technical humility. Humility isn't going, oh, humility is not, not taking credit for stuff that you deserve honor for. But what God says, give honor to him, honor is due. So humility is not being uh, what we call abasing yourself. That's not humility. 
Humility is recognizing the position of authority that you're in and living according to that, that position. If you're under it, live like it. If you're in it, live like it. That's, that's humility in its rawest form. Um, there, there's, there's more to talk about that, but that's the technical aspect of things. Gentleness, which is temperance. Patience, which is don't get angry quickly. Showing tolerance, showing tolerance to one another in love. And that takes that aspect of life in order to endure people's maturation. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then look at what he says. And you gotta ask yourself, do I believe this? Because it's very important. It's very important as a presupposition for you and for me. There is one body, right? There's only one spiritual body. There are no Christians in heaven. There are no denominations in heaven. There's only children of God in heaven, right? That's it. There's no religion there. So you don't get Catholicism. You don't get Christianity. You don't get Baptist. You don't get anything. There's just children of God. There are no distinctions. Was Christ a Christian? No. So you can't, all that's stupid. All that's human designation. The bottom line is only the body, is only one body. And you're either in because you're in alignment with what he's about to say or you're not, right? It's that simple. Because God only thinks one thing. God's not getting, no one went to heaven and God went, tell me your thoughts. I heard you on earth and it was brilliant. I read all your tomes of books and I'm marveled by all the extra data that you came up with and please teach me. No, no, God doesn't care about that. He's like, you didn't agree with me. And you wrote 37 volumes and you missed the whole point. Right? And you said, but, 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 there's going to be none of that. You just, you didn't, you either, you either agree with God or you don't. He only thinks one way. He only accomplished one act of redemption. The gospel is a very small body of data. Right? So we're not talking about learning a lot. So you either agree with him or you don't, which is why he says, there's one body, just as we were called into one hope of our calling. You only have one hope of your calling, sonship. That's your only hope of calling. There's only one Lord, right? There's only one. There's only one belief, one belief, one faith, right? Just one. And God is the, is the one who holds the key to that belief. In other words, God's belief has to be my belief because Christ believed what God's belief and it was Christ's belief that led him to the cross, right? Christ's belief, he says he it was, he's the author and perfecter of belief, faith. For the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. He believed God. And now I've got to believe what God believes because Jesus believed what God believes. So I have to believe what Jesus believes in order to be saved. I have to enter into that belief. I'm entering in. I'm not collectively gathering data and just believing what I want to believe. I'm believing what they believe. Now you can believe what you want to believe. But everybody's going to stand before God in the end and he's going to say, yeah, we agreed. You agreed with me. Or he's going to be like, I never knew you, right? Jesus made that over clear over and over and over. I never knew you. And they'll say, but, but I knew you, right? I knew you. I did many wonderful works. I did all this stuff, all this, all this teaching and works, and we did miracles, and we did ministry, I knew you very, very well. Gave my whole life to you. And you say, but I didn't know you. See, and that's all that matters. That's why Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that you may know the Father 
and his son, Jesus Christ, they have to know us. And, uh, and that's the way it's going to be. God believes one thing. There's one baptism. What is that talking about? There's one immersion into Christ. There's one dying with him. This is Romans 6. And there's one living with him. There's only one. There's not multiple deaths in multiple lives. There's only one death in one life. Right? And it says, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So that's the basis. I have to start by saying, okay, God believes one thing and I've got to figure out what he believes to agree with him so I can walk with him, right? My calling as a son leads me to understand he's my father. Jesus is my brother and they believe stuff and I've got to figure that out and dial it in and walk according to that reality. So he says, each one of us, is, uh, of, of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he says, okay, how did... So some might say, oh no, well, what do we do? How do I grow? How do I mature? How do I unify myself with God? Because I made proper provisions for that. I gave gifts. Then he says this little quote, therefore it says, when he is ascended on high, he led, uh, led captive a host of captives. And when he did that, he gave gifts to men. And he says, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended himself also um, is, is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might complete everything, fulfill all things. It says fill all things, which is the word complete everything. In other words, he's back in heaven because he's got a job to do. But when he went, he's not here to do what I do. He's not here to do what you do. But we're here, we're his body to accomplish it. And part of the body that he's gonna talk about right now is the one that helps you grow in respect to the first part of, of the text. It says he gave some apostles. There were only 12 of those. There's only 12 names in heaven over the gates of heaven, the apostles of the Lamb. There were apostles of the apostles, but there's only 12 apostles of the Lamb. So he gave some as apostles. It says he gave some as prophets. And that would be like Luke, Mark, Jude, James, people who wrote the scriptures, Timothy. Uh, no, Timothy was not, not designated as a prophet. It's not that we know of. That's Paul writing to Timothy. <laughs> Timothy didn't write it. He says he gave some as evangelists. That's euangelion or good news speakers. Those who preach good news. And he gave those some as those who are shepherding, these are participles, ones who shepherd and ones who teach. Ones who shepherd and ones who teach. So he says, for this reason, why did he give them? For the equipping of the holy ones. He already said you were a holy one. And these guys, whoever they are, first start with the apostles and those who wrote the scriptures and then evangelists who bring about salvation to people. And then you have the guys who do the cleanup, which is, the, 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 those who do the shepherding and those who do the teaching. Now, there is only one shepherd. There's only one shepherd, and that's Jesus Christ. He said that in John. And there's only one shepherd of the sheep. But there are people who shepherd on his behalf. But we're not the shepherd. We're just people who shepherd on his behalf. And there's only one teacher. There's only Kathagetes. There's only one true teacher, and that's Jesus Christ. Right? He said that, call no one your Catholic gates, call no one your teacher, for you have one teacher, 
right? So that's Jesus Christ. We only have one teacher. But we teach on his behalf. Therefore, we're not teaching our view. We're not teaching our uh, ideals. Not supposed to anyway. We're teaching his. And we're going to be held accountable for whether we accurately do that or not. Every teacher should basically be teaching so as to bring you to an understanding where you can be taught by the Holy Spirit. A teacher isn't the one teaching someone. The Holy Spirit actually does the teaching. I just make it clear enough so that you can then consider it and be taught in your heart by the Holy Spirit and effectively be taught by no one. This was a lot easier back in Greek times where we didn't have translations. <laughs> right? If I didn't have to say, well, this Greek word is this and this is that and this is the subject of this and this and blah, blah, blah. Help people's brains unpackage all this and help the cultural significance come to light, then this was a whole lot different. People weren't amazed at sermonic preparations because they didn't have to, they didn't have the language barrier. He says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building of the body of Christ. That's pretty much it, right? So there are people designed to do this. He says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building of the body of Christ. Because that's what it leads to. And this is until we attain to unity of belief. A unity of belief. Because it's assumed that people don't believe the same thing until they do, right? I didn't believe the same as God until I did. And I didn't believe the details about the truth that God gives until I did. That's my, my job was to, to, to unify myself with him. And then and to, to seek out however, whatever help from the word of God, from the Holy Spirit, and from, from the ones he's called to do this job to accomplish that fact. And now my position is to do that very thing to help others grow up and understand what he says so as to be unified with him, to have a unified belief till we grow to the uni unity of belief. And of the, and it should say specifically, of the knowledge of the Son of God. It sounds like and of the Son of God is a different body of belief and it's not. It's just the way the Greeks wrote. And specifically that of the knowledge of the Son of God, this should result in a mature man, mature spiritual person. And how mature can you get? Well, you can grow to the measure of the stature which belongs to the completeness of Christ. And again, that's a belief. Do I believe or do you believe that in your life, if Christ was married to your wife and had your kids and had your job and, or did your business, whatever it is, do you believe that you can grow to the, the maturity that Christ could grow in your lifetime? Because that's what he says the, the expectation is. That you can grow to live out your faith exactly like Christ would do it. You know the WWJD movement back in the day? It's not what would Jesus do? It should be what, did, what, was, what does Jesus believe about the situation in my life? Because however he believes is how my faith should line up and therefore my works come out of that. So when you're a little lost, rather than ask yourself what would Jesus do, Ask yourself, what, would, what does Jesus believe about my situation right now? If he were me, if he were married to my wife, if he had my kids, if he had my job, if he had my friends, if he went to the body of believers that I go to, 
what, what does Jesus believe about, what would Jesus believe in my situation? And then apply yourself the way Jesus applied himself in a, in a, in a common belief. It says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature man is measure sexual responsibility Christ, so that you will grow to that, that stature. And that's saying something, because most people, oh, you know, I, I'm just never going to make it, blah, blah, blah. He says, as a result, no longer, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. Because that's what it, we're easily deceived if you're ignorant. If you're ignorant, you can be easily deceived. If you have questions, you have uh, objections, somebody through craftiness of deceitful scheming, it is easy, easy to be deceived. He says, but rather speaking the truth to one another in love, we are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, that is, Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper work of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. Love is the mastery. Love based on belief. Because ultimately there's two commands, right? There's two commands. The, the, the Mosaic law was erased. The law in heaven is gone, but there are two Commands, and what are those two commands? Believe in the Son, right? The way God describes it. Believe in the Son. And what? It's Je- no, no, not love your neighbor. Jesus gave a new command. In John 13, 33-36, love one another as I have loved you. That's the new command. There's only two. And these two commands, one saves you and one guides you. One saves you and one guides you. Because the first one, you have to believe in the Son, right? In respect to the Son, believe what the Son believes. And you have to become a new creation. And the second one is the ultimate goal. You can't love accurately without knowledge. It's no more than you can play a sport or throw a football or play a musical instrument. You have to know. If I say... The goal is to play sweet music. All right, you say, how long does it take on a violin to practice intellectually and physically to play just a little sweet music? Right? (laughs) Tells us everything. How about a piano? How long does it take to, play, to, to practice a piano? Maybe a little quicker. You could, you could marry as a little lamb with some elegance, eloquence uh, uh, there. Uh, you, you could, how, how long, Megan, how, how long did it take for you to get a long time? Depends on how well To really get a good song, right? Yeah. It takes a while. And some instruments are easier to play and some are harder to play. And the violin will be one of the harder ones to get right. <laughs> So when he says, the goal is love, that sounds lovely. (laughs) Okay, now, pray and study and mature in the true knowledge of Christ so that you will know what you're doing because you don't know what you're doing, guaranteed, until you line yourself with God in the way he believes about you and the other people around you. Right? Because you cannot love 
people the way God would love them or want them loved until you align yourself the way he thinks. You're going to be doing a self-styled way, winging it, and it just never works. <laughs> winging it only works out until you know, five interceptions in the game. Yeah. Right? And then, then all of a sudden, winging it just doesn't work anymore. So you can get some glorious moments winging it, you know, but it, it's not going to pay off in the long run. You have to understand who you are, what God has done, and how love works out in his administration in contexts of authority, in contexts of, of uh, understanding humility. Like I said, people so often get that one wrong and, and miss the point. Um, you, your goal is love. But to get there, it is work. And the, the trickery, and I'll give you this warning, and we'll, we'll pick up, I'll do a little review and then we'll pick up next time. The, 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 the caution on knowledge is what? What does knowledge do? Puffs up, makes us arrogant. So what is your battle going to be as you grow? You're, you're maturing and growing in knowledge to love. So you can do a great job at loving. But what are you going to do, you struggle with while you're maturing and growing? Yeah, you're going you're gonna to first grow in righteousness and holiness and understanding all these things, the truth, what God's done. And that's going to puff you up, make you proud and make you judgmental <laughs> and create more of this, um, a perverted version of love that is distant, um, lacks empathy, lacks compassion, lacks consideration, lacks perspective of the person that you're dealing with, whether they're mature or immature. It's like when I do my kids, if you uh, inevitably, if you have kids or you've been a kid and you remember that far back, I was a kid once. That as a kid, you always judge the people under you as if they are, they are under the same standards of maturity that you are under. In other words, my older kids, as they grew up, would always judge the younger kids like, they're doing this. Yes, but I haven't I've not taught, I've taught them not to. In other words, they're not where you are. So you can come to me in humility and say, Dad, they're doing this so you know. I don't know if you've taught them or not, but just, just a heads up. It might be time for me to teach them, right? Rather than, I can't believe they're like, Satan doing this. <laughs> you know? Usually that's the version we got, right? Yeah. The kids are uh, merciless. They don't remember, especially the eldest kid, <clears throat> doesn't remember <laughs> when... They were, how they were treated by the parent with the compassion and the patience and the tolerance, which goes back up to the beginning of this. When you're dealing with people who are growing, you have to be patient and tolerant and enduring and have perspective and look at not the age of a person, but look at the spiritual age. That's why he so often calls them children, because no matter what age you are, you're a child until you're not a child, right? You're ignorant until you have knowledge. You're immature until you're mature. And so only pride will make you, you know, not want to be considered that way. But in reality, if you humble yourself like a child, you will grow into a wonderful, beautiful child of God. And that process, though, is messy. It's intended to be messy. In the same way that a child's life and their maturation is messy. God is not surprised, nor is he disappointed. He only gets disappointed when you hide your messiness with pride and try then to cloak it over and act like I'm a grown-up. 
you know, I'm fine, you know, I'm doing wonderful. It's like, God's like, oh, you know, no, you're not. And you know you're not. But um, you need to, you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to say, you don't have to go around talking about how in, 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 immature you are. That's dumb too. It's immature too. Say you're immature. But just don't act higher than you are in your maturation, Right? Live according to that reality. And then joyfully grow. If you can't throw a football, learn to throw a football. It might take a while, right? You don't sit there and go, oh, God, I have to do it again yesterday. You know, and you keep throwing it. It's going off left and right. It's not spiraling. It's wobbling. It's, you know, whatever. It's eventually every throw is going to be perfect. But you've got to practice, right? You've got to be self-aware. I, I'm terrible, and I've got to work on getting good. And the only way to work on getting good, I remember Tony Romo used to talk about how he would sit on the couch and he said all the time he had a football in his hand. And all the time he would sit and he would throw football. Just on the couch, just sit and he would throw the football. And he, he, he perfected rolling it off of his finger. He had one of the sweetest throws of all quarterbacks, if you remember the way he threw. It was beautiful. But he would, he would just sit on the couch and watch TV, do whatever he was doing. And he, was just, he would just sit and just work. And he would get that motor skill down until he had one of the most beautiful deliveries on the football. In other words, he was, even as a pro football player, recognized he needed to perfect his craft. And the goal is perfecting your craft as a child of God, that is to say, being a child of God, that is your craft, (laughs) being a child of God and working that out in every day. Next time what we're going to look at is, is what I am excited about. And I love so much is to go through this whole section of four and five down to 15. And he's going to say, walk no longer as the Gentile walks in the futility of your mind. Why? Because you're a new creation. 24, put on the new self, which in according to God or likeness of God has been created in true holiness and righteousness. And then 25 through 32 is walk that out. And, and he gives you illustrations. He could have gave 500 illustrations. He gives you just a few verses. Why? Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. See, that's what we're, we're striving to do is walk out our life as a beloved child. Not just a child, a beloved child. And believe me, as a, as a parent, you know that your child will assume you don't love them when you, when you go to discipline them. And you have to tell your kid, no, you're loved. Stop treating me as if I don't love you. It's very important that as a parent, you with young kids understand this about your kids. You do not have an advantage with them. They will assume you're wrong. They will assume you don't understand and they will assume that you don't love them. That they're not beloved. Oh, you might love them, but they're not beloved. And you have to tell your kids, stop treating me as if you're not a beloved child. You are a beloved child. You're in my love. As a father, I love you. My, just because I'm dealing with you appropriately in some form of teaching, training, admonition, correction, whatever, doesn't mean you're not beloved. You are my beloved child. However, you have to grow and learn this lesson, right? So you're a beloved child, and just because God deals with you sometimes in difficult ways doesn't mean you're not beloved. You are beloved. It's impossible not to be beloved. He says, walk then like Christ, and then he says, Walk as children of light because you are light in the Lord. You are light. And then walk in wisdom, verse 15. We'll look at that next time. But the, the illustrations of walking as a beloved child there and as a child of light 
in 3 through 7, the comparison. That's going to help you understand the difference between walking according to what's right and wrong and walking according to my belief. Because if you believe you're a new creation, created in holiness and righteousness, holiness and truth, true holiness and righteousness, you don't lie. Why? Because God doesn't lie. Because I'm his child. It all connects to who am I? What is my belief? Who am I? What is my belief? That's everything. And if you learn to walk that out, life gets more peaceful. You get more patient. You understand how to pace your own maturation and pace those around you. Because you're looking at a child growing, not a person performing. You're looking at a child growing to present their body, their spirit, their spirit present their body as a spiritual sacrifice rather than a person present, uh, um, performing or conforming to the world so as to perform an act of righteousness or holiness that makes them look like something on the outside, but they don't actually believe it on the inside. So, all right, with that, let's, I'm gonna close in prayer. We'll go from there. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful time. A blessing, I pray that it, this truth encourages the hearts of those here. That their minds will be renewed with your true knowledge. That they will begin to see and understand what it means to walk in newness of life and perfect love through their faith. And rest in the peace and the joy that you have given to us. I pray that um, you bless us all as we enjoy our fellowship and our food and that um, your spirit would be with us today and that you would be happy with our time, that it would be a blessing to you and that, Father, that you would be happy that when we come together as your body, that this temple is one that is sweet and has an aroma of beauty to you and one that you can be proud of. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.